Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Bowlology Report. A massive week in cricket again. Some fantastic finishes to Test Match Cricket. Pakistan, West Indies, has been a, a wonderful series. And India and England, uh, Joe Root absolutely dominating um, previous tests. Some great uh, lower order batting by Shami and, and Boomer. Um but we're going to change tact a little bit here. The new innovation into cricket is the 100 over in England, and we're lucky enough to have one of Australia's finest test batsmen, finest left-arm wrist spinners as well, a best of six in test match cricket. Uh, he coaches all around the world. You can hear him on SEN and see him on Channel 7 Cricket. I'm talking about the main man, the hairy man, Simon Cadditch. Caddo, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Flem. Now, you just look like you're quarantining nicely. Is it Barbados? I can see that. Just on the beaches of Barbados. No, thankfully, uh, I'm back home in Sydney um, on day four of quarantine. So only 11 days, uh, 10 days to go, but who's counting? Um, no, yeah. You're still doing throwdowns? You like your throwdowns? <laughs> look, uh, I've gotten to a routine now. This is my third one, um, having done a couple of IPL stints in the last sort of 12 months, so I'm getting used to quarantine now and got my daily routine um, all sorted at the moment. Unfortunately, jet lag's getting me up at 4am, so uh, it's a long day, but I'm uh, getting there. <laughs> and, Cato, you know, I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you, you went over to, to coach the Manchester Originals. Um, could they get a better name than that, like the Manchester Maulers? Hey, what's wrong with the Originals? We love it. I think it's it's original, obviously. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> look in terms of um, the hundred. I think you know we went there not knowing what to expect. Obviously, a new competition. Um, it, there's been a lot of talk about it. There's been a lot of negativity about it, um, particularly in English cricket and the way it was formed and, and opposition from some of the counties to it. But I think what we saw was a magnificent product. Um, the players certainly embraced it. It was great for both men and women's game. I think the women uh, certainly enjoyed playing, um, you know, in before our games. And I think we shared that the same venues. Um, we helped each other out at training at different stages. And I think there was a real camaraderie between both groups um, um, starting the tournament. So, yeah, overall, the cricket that was played was excellent. Um, there was a few little differences to the, to the format in terms of some of the rule changes. But, yeah, the players... Um, you know, put on a great show and it was great to be part of. I know, just to uh, get you to elaborate a bit on that, you know, the different rules in the 100 compared to T20 cricket, like what did you like? Um, you know, what can uh, a program like the Big Bash actually um, copy from from the 100? And then, and then also a few of the subtle tactical differences 
that the hundred, you know, with the the bowlers can bowl ten balls in a row and uh, consecutive overs from one end. Can you elaborate a bit more on? And I'm sure you've had a little bit of a debrief in quarantine on, on the on the cons of of the hundred and what other leagues can learn from it. Yeah, look, it was. I think initially everyone thought, how similar is it going to be to T20? Because obviously there's only 20 balls less, and it felt like there was a big difference, particularly from a batting perspective, because you're only bowling five ball sets, and, and we can't call them overs, Flem. They're, they're sets, so <laughs> there was five <laughs> balls in the set, and. What was what we found was that you know if a batsman had a dot ball early in the set, then that only being five and not having the extra ball at the end, it, it, it caught up really quickly. So there was a uh, there was certainly some perceived pressure on the batsman, um, and once they started to get a feel for the rhythm of the innings, that changed as the tournament went on. But I think you alluded to one of the big differences in the game is that uh, five ball in the set, but it was ten balls bowled at each end, so that sped up the game. And if the captain wanted to, he could bowl someone two consecutive sets of five. So you could bowl 10 balls on the bounce, um, which happened a fair bit. And it, it added a, a difference to the game where, you know, if someone had the wood over and got a wicket in that first set of five, particularly in the power play, captains were really inclined to see the same bowler go again, uh, particularly if there's a new batsman out there. So it just added a different element to the game. I think the other thing that was really good was that um, when you lost a wicket, the new batsman had to take strike. So particularly at the back end of the innings, it benefits the bowling team in the mm. fact that you can potentially build more pressure on that new batsman uh, if there's another set batsman in. And that maybe brought the scores down a little bit. So there was that. The time frame, I think we had 65 minutes to bowl the 100 balls, which was speeding things up, um, which was good. And if you didn't bowl 95 balls by the allotted time, uh, the cutoff time, then the captain, the bowling captain had to bring an extra fielder into the ring, which happened a few times. So there was an incentive there for making sure that teams were getting through the balls and and all that. So, yeah, overall, really positive experience. It was on free-to-air TV, which is the first time since 2005 in the UK. So they obviously want to take it to a new audience. And I think that move in itself, um, from all reports, proved to be very popular with the English public, where, from all reports, the ratings were outstanding on both um, free to wear and also Sky. So, um, yeah, overall, really positive experience. And the standard of cricket that we witnessed was excellent. Um, we had a number of our players at Manchester who'd had very good blast campaigns for their respective counties, came to the 100, started well, but when the pressure built at the back end of the tournament, the big games came around, they found it tough because some of the world's best players were there and the talent pool was condensed into eight teams. So, it certainly made for a, a tougher competition than and probably some of them had experienced in um, the blast competition in the UK. Condensed tournament with the best players. Geez, you might be onto something there. Well, what it only went for a month and there was eight yeah. games. So, you know, there was a lot riding on um, those eight games and you have four games at home. And I guess from our perspective, we, we got hit the hardest in terms of having two games washed out at home. And that really sort of stalled our progress when we were building some good momentum. So that puts a lot of pressure on. And I think, you know, a tight, condensed schedule, um, players certainly enjoy it because the the overseas boys know that they can come in for a month, they do their work, and then they can move on to their next challenge. And I think all the players enjoyed the, the way the schedule was and the format. Yeah, when, when there's been complaints about the big bash that it goes for too long, well, well one of the criteria is to back that up for myself, having commentated from from the first year is I, I think 
the the intensity, particularly early in the tournament, has dropped a little bit. But oh yeah, we can make up a win at home later on. But when it's shorter, you know, every game, you know, every over, every ball is absolute premium. What about from a coaching perspective? The difference between T twenty and then the hundred. Yeah, it was a good question. I think you know we weren't sure of whether there was going to be any trends in the game, and because there's no history of <laughs> there've been a few practice games played but there wasn't a lot to go on so we were sort of uh, I guess just dwelling on things that had happened in the blast and any trends that have happened in English cricket because obviously the conditions there are different to some of the other tournaments um, that I certainly have worked in recent times so yeah the, the thing that we found early was that you know some of the wickets had been used and it was it's been a lot of cricket played in the UK this summer um, and so from that respect you know there were some tired wickets which changed, you know, the dynamic of the game. And actually, I think it changed it for the good. You know, some of the batsmen just couldn't go out there and, you know, slam fours and sixes all the time. There actually had to be some batsmanship and some craft. So I think that added to the game. There was, you know, sometimes 130 was a winning score, you know, which when you think about 100 balls, you probably think that's quite low scoring when, you know, in a, in a T20, 120 ball game, you know, normally pars around the 180 mark. So, I think, you know, we started to learn a few things about the trends in the game, the fact that there's only five balls in the set. Uh, bowlers can potentially bowl, you know, 10 balls on the bounce and and have an impact there, particularly with a new ball early if it's swinging, uh, which it did at times in England. So, yeah, there was a lot of learnings from it. And I think from a coaching perspective, what I really liked was there's a lot of really good talent over there. Um, we had a fantastic group of young guys to work with, um, fantastic characters, Great to get to start to know them now and, and you know, help develop them, um, I guess, from a cricket perspective. They've already got plenty of cricket ability. It's more around, you know, mm. I think the challenge now is around them gaining experience and their thinking around how they um, work their way through situations under pressure because that was probably the one thing that we saw with a young team having had to make a number of changes through injury and stuff was that um, when the pressure came, a lot of our decision-making under pressure uh, was questionable and we, we probably took more wrong options than we got right and ultimately that cost us at the back end of the tournament um, when we were in with a great chance to finish top three. Yeah, it sounds like a great experience. So um, we're, we're in a different landscape around the world and, and cricket's affected like no other and the amount of quarantining for players and coaching has got to obviously take effect. So you're, you've um, given up the RCB coaching. Is that just for, for this last leg? Or is it indefinitely? Yeah, it was just for this last leg. Um, I guess what happened was, you know, once the decision was made around the rescheduling, it all happened uh, whilst I was away during the 100. And unfortunately, during the 100, I knew that I was potentially going to be away for maybe three and a half months once the dates came in uh, and quarantine on the back of the IPL finishing in mid-October. So once I realised that, you know, I was potentially not going to get home until the end of October and then the situation changed in Sydney with the lockdown and homeschooling being extended until, well, indefinitely really, it potentially could be, you know, into term four until the end of the year. So I realised that, you know, that was going to be a big ask for my wife to look after two boys by herself. So I made the, the decision that, you know, once the 100 was over, I'd come home and, um get back on deck so I'm really comfortable with that decision uh, I'm not sure how obviously you know it goes down in IPL circles given that it is a big tournament and you know we had a great start to the tournament this year and and um, it was a tough decision but I know that I'm doing the right thing by my family and um, you know we always talk about family coming first in these COVID times and, and I certainly make sure of that. 
two names you coach over there, two superstars. Can you can you give some insights into Virat Kohli and AB De Villiers, um, particularly you know coaching probably the most famous and most influential player in the world at home? Did you have to tread carefully around Virat, or were you impressed straight away by his attitude? Look, I was really impressed. I mean, I played against him when he was a kid, um, starting out in I think two thousand and nine, and we had a bit of a joke about it because. Um, you know, you look at him now and he's cut like a Greek god, but back then he was like a puffed-up party boy. We had a bit of a joke about that um, and I showed him a photo of it. So he sort of broke the ice that way. But, you know, I've obviously got a huge amount of respect for what he's achieved in the game so far. And I guess from a coaching perspective, you know, there's nothing I'm going to teach him about batting. But what I found really refreshing was that for a man of his ability and what he's achieved in the game, he's still really open um, around his game and, and trying to improve things. So, you know, he, he still asks for um, to watch things, at, little things at training technically. Uh, he's obviously a master technician, so he's always looking for to make sure his game's in order. Um, but the big thing for me was just trying to build that trust with him and connection, particularly from that leadership point of view. And um, having done the job, you know, myself as a captain, I realised that as coach, it's really important that he feels comfortable being in charge and making all the calling all the shots because that's the dynamic that you know I learn as a captain and I, I'm really um, you know that's one of my I guess priorities as a coach is to make sure the captain feels like he's calling the shots and um, is in control. So I was just mainly trying to support him as much as I could. Uh, he was brilliant around our group. You know when you when you ask for leadership, I mean he's second to none in a way that you know the guys always you know are always going to play for him, but also he's just a natural competitor. So, you know, regardless of where the game's at, you know that he's 100% having a crack at the game, trying to win it. Um, you know, he's he's probably the most professional player I've ever um, seen. I mean, we obviously played with some of the most professional um, Australian guys in our era, Flem, um, that trained harder than, than anyone in the game. And I'd say I think he's taken it to a different level um, on and off the field with cricket side of things, but also the physical side of things. So, from a leadership perspective, mate, you can't ask for much more from a guy um, in terms of the way he goes about it and the respect he's shown by everyone there. Um, and then you, when you get to De Villiers, well, mate, you know it's hard to it's hard to find enough adjectives for him because you know if he's not the greatest T20 player ever, then I'm not sure who is. I mean, Chris Gale's probably going to argue that being the universe boss, but um, you know, AB's you know, he's all class. I mean, the role we got him to play in these last two seasons, probably slightly different to previous years where we've actually batted him a bit lower and got him to try and control the back end of the innings. Uh, and the way he took that and and um, has mastered it, well, no, I shouldn't say mastered it. He already had mastered the game, but this was probably a new challenge for him and he's he's played it magnificently um, in these last two seasons. The amount of times he can get 70 off 30 balls in the last 10 overs of a game in T20 is just remarkable. I think I'd well, we've seen him done it. We've, he's probably done it about three or four times in each season in these last two years. So a phenomenal player. It's based on having a, a very, very good technique, which obviously he honed over many years for South Africa and having such a fine test record. And he's also got the power game of T20 now, and he's just he's so good at playing cat and mouse with the bowlers. I, I just think he's extremely clever. He outthinks the bowlers, and he's got the technique to back it up. And... Um, just a wonderful player to have in your group and, and to work with. 
Yeah, going back from IPL now to, to test match cricket and um, intriguing series, India and England. There's a lot of conjecture on will they have a full squad, but just assuming that England do have a full squad, how um, successful could they be over in Australia next summer? Look, the biggest challenge they always have coming here is is obviously how their bowlers are going to take 20 wickets on our flatter wickets than they get in England because they are so used to the ball moving around and doing a bit. So that will still be a challenge for them, I think. Uh, losing the airspeed of of someone like Jofra Archer who can can shake up the Australian batting lineup and particularly the tail. Uh, we know that in Australia, if the tail wags, you can get you know those sort of 150 runs plus from sort of seven down and that can be the difference between winning and losing tests so he's a massive loss potentially mark wood's got a shoulder injury at the moment not sure how serious that is you know they've had a number of injuries wokes is a very good cricketer he's out at the moment um you know there's going to be some issues there for them from a bowling perspective you know they're probably still not quite settled on who their number one spinner is and we know that in australia you need to have someone bowling 20 to 30 overs a day to give the, the quicks a breather to rotate them. So I think Australia's definitely got a big advantage in, in our conditions with our attack and with Nathan Lyon. Um, and particularly after he had the summer he had last year, he would have been disappointed with the summer he had. And I think uh, he'll be keen to bounce back from that. So I think it, it's going to come down to yeah, top six as usual um, and potentially yeah. the, the engine room of the top three or four of both teams. And at the moment, I think Australia should have the advantage. Um, we haven't played much cricket, test cricket, but when you've got Warner, Labuschagne and, and Smith in the home conditions, I'll, I'll be backing in them in every day of the week compared to the England top three or four. And um, Joe Root's a, a lone wolf at the moment. He's He's got a bit of support in this Headingley test from the openers, but um, the England batting lineup, you know, they've been having issues at the top. Um, they probably haven't been settled and they're going to come into some foreign conditions here against what is a very good Australian attack. So, um, yeah, I, I think Australia should be favourites, but... Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see because we haven't played a lot of test cricket of late. Yeah, definitely. Um, just talking about the engine room, can you talk about your career and the adjustment, middle order player, 20-odd tests, getting told you're never going to play again, going out and punching out 1,500 runs, but the change in technique and then also how to adapt from being a middle order player to averaging 50 opening up for Australia? Yeah, I guess the biggest change, Flem, probably came in my mindset the second time around. Um, after being told in 2007 that I was never going to get picked for Australia again, I think the biggest difference to my game was that, you know, I think I was about 31 years of age at the time when I got told and I still felt like I had plenty of cricket left in me and um, I guess the mindset, and it had always been this way, but I think maybe I sharpened the focus a bit more, was that wherever I played my cricket, whether it was Manwick Petersham, New South Wales, county cricket, wherever I was just going to try and enjoy my cricket and, and try and win games of cricket from a team um, wherever they may be. And as soon as I think when you're captain, that helps as well because you, your main focus is on getting best out of the 10 other guys and also yourself. Um, and that probably took a bit of pressure off me, but I, I think that focus just, yeah, took the pressure off my personal batting and I went out there and, and played really well. And from a technical point of view, the only probably change that I, made from probably the 05 Ashes to getting back in in 2008 was just the timing of my prelim movement. During the 05 Ashes, it was a bit late, and then I was finding myself not having a secondary movement and then just playing with my hands. Come 2008, I'd rectified the timing of that, made it back to how it was previously, earlier, 
I was then making a secondary movement either forward or back and found myself playing really well again. So it was only a small adjustment, but it made a big difference. And um, combined with that mindset change, I just went out there and really enjoyed my cricket. And I think I definitely played my best cricket from 2008 to the end of my career in sort of early 2014. And I think a lot of it came down to, yeah, that making the most of that last opportunity. I also think you mentioned about the opening, the batting. I think I'd never really got to bat at the top of the order for Australia, apart from, I think, the 04 series in India when Ricky Ponting was injured. And I'd always probably consider myself a top-order player, but getting to open in that last phase definitely suited me because I didn't chew up any nervous energy waiting, sitting around waiting to bat. I just got out there and got on with it. And I think being in an opening partnership as well helped because it felt like I became you know, part of a team within the team. And I know that's something that, you know, whether it was Haydos, whether it was Jakesy, whether it was um, Husey, whether it was Shane Watson, any of those four partners always sort of the main focus was on our partnership rather than myself. And I think that took a lot of pressure off my own game as well. And I loved opening with all four of them. Um, but in, in at the end of it all, I think I'd probably got to open with Watto the most and um, really cherished that partnership and, yeah, it was disappointed it got cut short, unfortunately, at the end when we got told that um, they wanted to bed down the opening partnership for the 2013 Ashes. Yeah, and what year was that? Uh, I think it was in about 2010, something like that. So Yeah, yeah, and you went away quietly too. <laughs> Generally, your attitude is, you know, I'll come at you. And just when you got told, you know, when you made that uh, the press conferences and you ticked a lot of boxes that the current players and recently former players would have agreed with totally, did you come up with that yourself? Did management say, well, well you got nothing to lose by, by getting on the front foot there? What, what motivated it? No, it was, it was purely um, off my own back. No, I, just, I just felt like I needed to get off my chest. I felt like if I'd kept hold of it all, then it would have just it probably would have destroyed me because I was so upset yeah. with the fact that as you know mate like as all of us know that have set out on this journey to try and you know be the best you possibly can and, and play for Australia and when you've achieved that and and you know that you're doing a good job at it um and and you get cut short you feel like you know it's obviously a knife to the heart and um you know it was it was hard to hear what was going on and the reasons for it and I just wasn't going to accept that the reasons I was given were were legitimate and and were being brutally honest. So I felt like I needed to get off my chest. Um, I'm glad I did get off my chest. Um, but it was also, you know, having seen how Australian cricket was going at the time and and seeing it firsthand in first class cricket for New South Wales, it was a concern because we'd been part of an era that had been so successful, and then to see the decisions that were getting made you know, at state level around selection and, and players getting picked when they potentially hadn't earned the right uh, and then potentially that filtering into the Australian team, you know, that was something that really dismayed me and a lot of other players. So it wasn't probably just coming from my perspective. No. We all talked, we all had seen what was happening in Australian cricket and we were all dismayed at what was going on. So if anything, I was just probably happy to to get the trumpet out and, and blow that, um, you know, make make more of an awareness about it from a player's perspective and, I certainly got a lot of positive feedback around what I said. So um, it was nice to get it off the chest and then be able to move on, mate. Once once it was done and dusted, I knew my time was up and I was able to just go back and enjoy playing club cricket, playing cricket for New South Wales, playing county cricket, playing BBL cricket. Because at the end of the day, mate, I still love playing the game and that's what I was passionate about. So I knew that uh, I was never going to get picked again and I was happy to go down swinging. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, the main thing, I suppose, it gave you closure, but, you know, for, for the rest of the, the cricketing fraternity, you're one of the few Australian openers to average 50. You touched on even not just as much you individually, and we're struggling right now to get an opening part of, a partner for Dave Warner, who's getting older himself. You know, the Caddish Watson opening, and, and he was probably at his best as a batsman, opening with yourself and and it was the only right-hand batsman that you you opened with the other boys were all left-handers um could you just touch on quickly all those those four batsmen individually yeah starting with Watto I mean that was the other part of it that made it so upsetting because he was one of the first person that I got in touch with once I'd heard the news and I was upset for the fact that we couldn't open the batting again and and as it played out as you rightly said, you know, that was his best position in the Australian test team you know, during that phase of his career and, and end up ultimately hurting his test career as well. So that's what hurt as well because we had something that was working really well. We complemented each other well. We loved doing it together. Um, and that was taking away what we thought was unfairly. So that's the way it goes. Um, you know, that, that unfortunately, that's life. So but going back to the rest, I mean, obviously, Matty Hayden speaks for himself. Um, you know, I'd played a lot against Hados, and we'd had some great ding-dong battles in shield cricket. But then to open the batting together was, uh, you know, fantastic, given that you know he'd had such a successful partnership with uh, Justin Langer. Um, and then, you know, moving on, once he retired, um, or he got injured, sorry, uh, then Phil Jakes, and we'd batted together a lot for New South Wales. So Jakes and I... Um, got on really well with good mates. Um, we loved batting together, and you know that was was I know was successful in the West Indies in I think two thousand eight. And then unfortunately he got injured in India later. And he doesn't get talked about a lot. Like he averaged over forty, Jakesy. Yeah, like very his good career. Player, very. You good haven't player. heard him. Yeah, you know, he's gone into coaching, so he hasn't been lost. But you you never hear him um, begrudging what happened to him. But you know he, he was probably a fifty test opener without injuries comfortably and I think he's certainly good enough to do that and yeah unfortunately the injuries caught up with him with his back Um, now the next one is the late Philip Hughes I loved the opening partnership between you two because a lot to do with your games even though you're both left-handers but as a right-arm bowler it would have been an absolute nightmare and I enjoyed that South African series which would have to be one of the highlights of your career, I know it is with Ricky Ponting, but with your, your your movement moving across the crease, so the bowlers attack the stumps and you're whipping them through the leg side, so you adjust to that outside off stump to get your reaching. You bowl that line to Philip Hughes, and Hughes is uppercutting you over point for six. <laughs> so you must have you complement each other. You know he was such a, a popular member of the team, but you must have got so much fun out of. Stain and Philander and Morkel, it, it was doing their heady. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because having spoken to Dale Stain um, since finishing playing and talking about that series and, and just, I guess, playing against him, um, he has alluded to the fact that he found it really tough uh, to counter. And he's obviously, he was the bowler of our generation, without a doubt. I know in my uh-huh. second coming in Test cricket, by far he was the greatest challenge because... As an opener, you knew you were in for a challenge with a new ball um, because of his skill and also movement and pace. But I think what stood him out from the rest was that, you know, he'd come back with that 60-overall ball 
and he'd still be at you at pace and he still made it talk off the seam or a little bit of reverse. And that's probably when he was just as dangerous, you know, with the 60 overall ball, if you'd been fortunate to get through the first 60. So, um, you know, fantastic competitor. And I know for a fact, particularly that test in Durban, he was tearing his hair out bowling to Husey. And I mean, it is one of the great regrets, obviously, um, you know, not having played more with him and, and the tragic um, accident at the SCG. But I've got no doubt that had he come back into the test team, which would have happened, he was too good a player to play the rest of his career at first class level. He would have gone on to have a magnificent career for Australia. And, um, you know, it is one of the greatest tragedies um, that we've ever, you know, seen on a cricket field. And, um, you know, it rocked all of us um, and it, we still can't believe it happened. But, you know, getting to open with him in that series um, was a pleasure because, you know, for me, he'd come into the New South Wales side only probably, I think, a season earlier in 2007-8 when we won the Shield. Um, he was the youngest player ever to score a Shield 100 in the final. And, you know, from my perspective, that first year, it, it felt like he was my little shadow. Wherever I looked, he was there sort of bobbing up behind me and, and then to come into the test team and, and open together, you know, it's something we both loved because we'd spent a fair bit of time together for New South Wales. And um, I was as pumped as anyone when he got that first Test 100 in Durban, particularly the way he did it, plonking Harris up onto the bank oh. there at, um, at Durban. So, you know, it was it was fantastic to be a part of that, um, particularly as a senior player and particularly someone that had spent so much time with him and knew how special a talent he was. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a great tour. No, he sadly missed, and uh, what he did, he, yeah, from a young, he just scored hundreds, and he would have scored many more. Just back to you know some of the quicks that you faced. You're like Stain's um, stock out swinger to me. Obviously, looked pacey. It went late, but it almost looked like it, it dipped. You know, was that an optical illusion? No, not at all. I think um, the thing about Dale that that even though he's quite short. You know, normally with shorter bowlers, their trajectory is quite skiddy, and so there's not much margin for error with their length. But for some reason, even though he was quite short, um, he still made the ball sort of um, talk off the seam, but also it, it stood up. So he, he still got a bit of bounce for someone that, of his height because he's not overly tall. I think he would have only been probably about six foot, which, you know, similar height to myself. But it, it always felt like when he hit the seam, it bounced nicely and, and it wasn't just skidding onto your bat, um, which is normally the case for sort of bowlers of that height. But I think, yeah, as I mentioned before, I know we were due to play him in a test at the Wacker in, I think it was 2008 or nine that series, and all the press were talking him up to be bowling 160, and I was thinking, God, how am I going to face this? <laughs> so we got into the, into the nets and practised on the machine and cranked it up full belt. And I thought that's all I can do to prepare myself. And and then we got out in the middle, and he and he only bowled mid one forties, and it, felt like <laughs> it was just a nice, easy pace. So it just goes to show that if you obviously make training harder than the game, hopefully come game time you can you just go out there and and play. But he, yeah, he's I think he was probably one of the, if not the greatest bowler of our era. Um, you know, he's obviously Jimmy Anderson's obviously still going, but I think across all conditions. And the type of bowler that he was, yeah, Dale Stain for mine was was number one. Who got you out, Cato? Anyone underrated that just used to nibble you out a little bit? Oh, plenty of guys got me out, mate. <laughs> you know, it depends what sort of form you're in. There's plenty of times that was an easy wicket. Other times, hopefully, you made guys work hard for your wicket. I think in Test cricket, um, probably the greatest challenge was was Flintoff in that 05 Ashes, oh. um, and particularly batting at six, like. 
it was a, a spot that was I found tricky to bat in, facing an older ball, um, having been used to being at the top of the order for so long. So that was probably my biggest challenge. And then probably Murali in Sri Lanka. Um, but but he was he was a very enjoyable challenge as well because you knew if you could last against him, you could last against any spinner, um, given all his tricks. I'm glad you mentioned facing Flintoff. Oh, because I was batting at six. Well, you've got to have empathy for us tail enders <laughs> when we used to come in against the second new ball. Correct. And the ball's going everywhere and everyone's bowling quicker. Um, Western Australian born, um, very impressed by the way that you played spin. Where did that come from? It took a lot of work. Um, I know when I first started for WA, there was always probably a perception that you know guys from WA didn't play spin that well because the wacker didn't turn much. So and it was probably one of the reasons why when I moved to New South Wales, I knew that if I wanted to play for Australia, I was going to have to get better at it. So I think initially I used to sweep a bit and you can get away with it on a good, true, bouncy WA wicket. Uh, doesn't spin much, true bounce. Um, and if you've got a decent eye, you can get away with it. But when you come on subcontinent wickets where some bounce, some don't, some spin, some don't, um, you know, you, you have to be, you have to look for other ways to survive and score. So I know when I moved to Sydney, I made a really conscious effort to use my feet more. And I think as soon as I started to do that, I became a far better player of spin, looking to hit spinners straight. Um, I learned how to use my pad more to be able to defend out of the rough, particularly, you know, come day three, four, five in a test match um, where you, you sometimes you have to survive for the first 20 minutes just to get used to the conditions. So all those little parts of my game got better with, I guess, the move to Sydney and also getting exposed to subcontinental com, um, conditions because I, I think I played a fair few tests in my career <laughs> out of the 56 in the subcontinent, whether it was India or Sri Lanka or wherever. So, um, yeah, it's something that um, I certainly pride myself on trying to get better at that at part of my game. And kind of, I always like the different cultures. What what did you notice um, the difference between Western Australian Shield getting into the young bloke as a young bloke with uh, you know Moody and Julian and Angel and Langer and Martin, and then uh, crossing over to New South Wales as an older player? Um, what what would you a couple of different things that you perceive the difference in the cultures between the two states? Yeah, look, I was pretty fortunate that um, I'd sort of known a lot of the. WA boys from a young age because I played um, club cricket at Midland Guildford with about four of them um, from when I was 16 years of age. So Tom Moody was was at my club. So was Brendan Julian. So was Joe Angel. So was Tim Zura. So I was blessed to have all these mentors um, that when I moved into the WA squad at 18, um, they probably took it easier on me. And I know talking to guys like Haas and Rob Baker and these guys that came from other clubs, um, whilst they loved their time playing for WA, it was also a different dynamic for them and, and maybe the, the Midland boys took it easier on me and, and given Moods was c- captain at the time, um, you know, he's been like a mentor to me for my whole career, not just as a player but also now as a coach. So, um, I, I, look, I look back on that time really fondly and I think now the way my career's plan played out, I'm very blessed to have had, you know, that group around me as a young player and I learned so much from them, not just about cricket but also off the field and how they – um, you know, how they approach life and particularly from Tom and, and Wayne Clark, who was coach at the time. So very, very blessed. Um, and then to move to Sydney in, I think it was 2002 when I was about 27, completely different dynamic. Um, obviously a very experienced team with, you know, the War Brothers and 
McGrath, Bevan, Slater, McGill, all these guys. Um, you know, I probably f- missed a few there as well. You know, <laughs> had so many guys. So um, Slater, different, different dynamic. Um, but but the New South Wales boys made me feel very welcome, and, and I'm blessed for that as well because it, it is a daunting group to come in to that sort of you know group from another state. I didn't think I was going to move to another state. Um, you know, it's just the way things played out, and and yeah, I love my time playing for New South Wales with those guys, and, and had some very special memories, and certainly learned. I think if anything, I probably learned to believe and back myself more, and that's probably something that Steve War drew out of me. Um, you probably do it, but I, I think it went to another level in New South Wales, and uh, particularly with my bowling, and yeah, those guys, uh, particularly Steve in particular, deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, what does it feel like to have the best? Test figures of six because I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know what it's like to get a couple of hat tricks. So, um, look in terms oh, it of should that, have been two. Yeah, yeah, I know. I didn't want to remind you, but look in terms of um, that, I, I was pretty blessed, mate. There was a fair few caught out at deep midwicket, and I think Ricky caught one in at short leg, which was make up. But, but behind that, did you want to give yourself um, another option to be seen as a three-dimensional player? Like you know, had Bebo on. Last podcast played about half a dozen tests really as the second spinner, so it got him a game because it was so competitive for spots with with middle order players. So was it in the back of your mind to actually give um, the selectors another thing to think about that you could you could bowl some handy overs? I think at the time you had to because I think given the the nature of the top six in Australian cricket, it was so strong that you sort of had to bring other skills to the table and. You know, particularly with the way the top five were, if there was an opportunity, it was always generally for a younger player at six. So you couldn't just, you know, force your way into the top three or four because of the way the team was structured. And, um, you know, that number six spot sometimes an all-rounder and, and the guys I was competing with were always guys that, you know, could bat, but obviously um, potentially had, had the opportunity to bowl as well. So uh, I loved bowling. It's something I spent a lot of time working at and, um, I know prior to getting into that test side in 2003, 2004, I'd been at Hampshire playing and they'd sort of recruited me on the back of a season for New South Wales where I'd bowled a fair bit. And um, I spent a lot of time that summer in county cricket bowling and I loved it. Um, I felt like I was a genuine all-rounder at that point in time in my career because I was you know, batting at three or four and then um, you know, bowling sometimes 15, 20 overs a game. And um, loved being in the game, loved trying to help win games of cricket and, and yeah, that's where it all came from. Yeah, and at times in the last few years we've, we've, we've struggled, haven't we, just with the part-time bowling options. You know, we had the, the the two wars in the day. You know, Greg Blewett was a handy, fast-medium bowler. Spinners, yourself, Bevo. Uh, Mark Wall ended up bowling off spinners, didn't he? So Mark Taylor was excellent as a captain. Often he'd, he'd bring on someone like that just before lunch and the amount of times he got wickets. Um, just on a coaching, Justin Langer, obviously getting a lot of media about him at the moment. Not so much about Alfie himself, but what about coaching at international level? You know, where, where do you see it going? I know you're doing it more at domestic level at the moment, but, um, you know, one is the time away from home. You know, do the roles eventually have to get split? And then also, do you notice a difference between younger players and what they want out of the game as opposed to when you debuted all those years ago? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's changed. I think I don't envy the young players now because I think 
the way that that um, cricket's structured now, there's so much cricket, which is great from a development point of view because you can get a lot of games in in a short space of time. But the way our season's structured in particular, I don't envy our young batsmen because, you know, we didn't have the T20 comp hijacking the summer like it is at the moment. And I love the big bash. The problem is it has an impact on on our test batting because you've got this sort of six to eight week hiatus where guys don't face a red ball and we all know that a white ball doesn't do anywhere near as much um, and if you're trying to break into a test team yes there's shield games beforehand but if you don't play them for a month and then there's an injury and someone has to play in mid-January it's tough so I think it is it is tricky for the young guys now I think from a coaching perspective I, I definitely think countries are going to start looking at splitting the roles because I just think the volume of cricket that's played and particularly now with COVID and the bubbles and the quarantine times and stuff like that, it's just not viable for for coaches, particularly those with young families, to be away all year round. It, it probably puts too much pressure on the family. Families can't travel as much. I know firsthand recently, you know, a lot of the decisions around what I was doing coaching-wise in these next this next year or so were around no COVID because I made the decision in 2019 prior to COVID and my family were going to travel to IPL for a week or two and come to England for two weeks of the school holidays. Now they can't do that. They could, but quarantine makes it almost impossible with young kids. So um, it's changed the, the landscape. And I think a lot of the countries around, given the volume of cricket in international cricket, um, will start to maybe split the roles because, you know, th- there are different – the formats are so different now between test cricket and, and T20 cricket. So I can see – potentially being red ball coach and a white ball coach in time. And, mm. and then the coaches themselves find a really good balance between work and family. And I think potentially everyone benefits from that. And the players potentially benefit as well from having, you know, maybe different squads or, or specialist squads. Um, and that, and cause I know personally having just been a test player at the end of my career, I, I felt like I had a big advantage just playing test cricket and then going back and playing first class cricket for New South Wales or County cricket and not chopping and changing all the time. Whereas guys that were playing all three formats, you know, at some point the the schedule catches up with you because of the volume of cricket and the, the differences to your technique that creep in. So, um, yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah, I definitely have probably more empathy for the batters than the bowlers these days. To adjust to three different forms, you know, is really tough, probably mentally and tactically more than more than physical, whereas for the, for the faster bowlers, it's probably physical. Uh, I, I said I caught up with Michael Bevan last podcast, uh, a reality superstar. Probably the highlight was was as ham, Hammerhead, I think, on the Australian Mars Singer. When reality TV wanted their 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 most famous cricketing chef, they didn't go to Matthew Hayden. They come <laughs> knocking on your door. Um, you went okay. What cost you in the end, Celebrity Master Chef? What hurt you? Well, if I'm being honest... Because you love a feed, don't you? You're one of Australia's great uh, cricketing eaters. I should be 20 kilos heavier than I am, Flem, with the amount of food <laughs> I put away. But I've been blessed with, a, uh, I think, good genetics and a good, metab- good metabolism because I've always been pretty skinny. But, look, I loved my time on uh, in the MasterChef kitchen. I think what cost me, and I've like, been honest here, like for 90 minutes, I had to um, cook behind Miss Universe Australia, Rachel Finch. So it was pretty tough to concentrate. But look, in terms of um, the experience, I guess, you know, I didn't really know what to expect from MasterChef. I love my cooking. But what I realised was after it had aired on TV, 
um, I was down at the local Woolworths um, doing a bit of shopping and the ashes, I'd just been in the ashes in 2009, got home and a couple of young blokes came up to me at the counter and I thought, oh, these young blokes obviously love their cricket. Anyway, they came up and the first thing they said, hey, Kat, how do you cook spatchcock? And I was blown away because it was the last thing I was expecting them to say to me at the checkout at Woolworths. And uh, so we had a bit of fun with it, but great experience. Uh, the judges were great, passed on a lot of um, good tips. But ultimately, mate, I'm a home cook. I love cooking at home for my boys and wife and um, and family, and, and that's what I why I did it. Um, I, I don't think I would have done anything else, but cooking is my passion. So I thought, why not? And it's, um, it was a really good experience. All right. We'll put your name down for the mask Singer next year. Then. <laughs> I stumbled to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition. What about the commentary side? We're lucky enough to commentate together uh, with Seven and, and SEN. How have you found that? Mate, I've been so blessed because when I finished playing, I went into working at the Giants for a couple of years and then the opportunity came to work with um, Jared Waitley and Chris Rogers and Dirk Nannis and Jim Maxwell at the ABC. And I thought, oh, why not? I never thought I'd do something like that, but I thought I'll try it and loved it. And then it sort of morphed into doing the TV with you guys on Seven. And, I mean, the thing that um, I love the most is the team we've got and working with everyone, um, very professional. I've learned a lot with, obviously, a lot of experienced broadcasters like yourself and um, the rest of the guys on the crew, the Seven crew, obviously. Um, but I think the thing that, you know, stands out the most is, you know, we're getting... Uh, to do a job that we love, you know, commentating on the game we love, watching fantastic cricket um, and trying to hopefully bring some insights into, you know, the people at home in Australia. And, you know, it's you know, it's an unbelievable job. So I feel really lucky to work with both crews like SEN and um, Channel 7. And I guess the thing thing that I've learnt the most is, um, you know, is that it's still, even though it's a different uh, job, there's still a team environment, uh, and that's probably the, yeah. the best part of the job is is trying to put together, um, you know, a great great broadcast for everyone at home. No, certainly so. We enjoy your work, Kata. Now you you don't have a busy September either because your loved Tigers haven't <laughs> made the finals after winning three out of four years. But you alluded to your your role at the Giants. Um, you know, what was the actual role and, you know, how did it come about and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, look, it, it was to set up a leadership program with our sports psych um, in the first year and then it was also learning about the footy operations manager role with a view to potentially maybe doing that down the track with more experience. So I think the first year the leadership program was, you know, an opportunity to get to know our, our young leadership group um, and just sort of when I say leadership program, it was more around having the weekly meeting um, and asking the questions around, you know, what's worked on game day, what hasn't, feeding that back to the coaches, um, and then also having, you know, sessions with emerging leaders around their development. So giving them tasks, whether it's, you know, reading a chapter of a leadership book or doing some stuff that we did with um, New South Wales Police where we did some communication skill work and things like that. But ultimately it came down to, you know, having a program where the players um, judged each other and their leadership on standards of behaviour at the club. So just having those conversations face-to-face with the leaders, with the young players and giving open and honest feedback, that was probably the one of the biggest parts of the role. And, um, yeah, great group to work with, highly professional. I certainly learned a lot being there for two years and loved my time there. Um, and, yeah, in terms of uh, what was the other part of the question again? I just said, what did you learn? Yeah, well, I guess the thing that I learned was that, you know, the attention to detail in the AFL is second to none. Obviously, mm. they study a lot of the American 
um, professional sports and the way they coach and the way they develop young talent. And I think that's something that I certainly took with me now into my roles coaching in T20 is is the time and effort that gets put into developing young players, whether it's the use of t- um, the footage and the data um, and and having those weekly you know, catch-ups with players to, to run them through how they're performing either in training, in games, and, and just, yeah, that detail that they do. Um, cricket was always very informal, as you know, mate. You mm. you might have those conversations over a beer at the bar or at dinner. or And I think that's, you know, it's a really great part of the game, but there was a more structured way to the way they do it in AFL that, that I certainly think that, you know, I've tried to embrace with the cricket coaching side of things, particularly in T20 where, a lot of the game comes down to decision making, and you can um, you can talk through those experiences with player players after the event or even before the event um, from a tactical perspective. Now, a lot of cricketers are doing pre-season, well, trying to do some pre-season in lockdown. What what would your advice be for for left-hand opening batsmen going into a season? What do I'd they need to over do? To England if you can, because I think, like, I look back on a lot of our era, and I think so many guys develop their games playing, you know, in England, whether it's league cricket, county cricket. I mean, I know that the dynamics change now. Guys can go and play IPL in the T20 leagues. But if you want to be a, a test opener or a test batsman, then I think at some point you've got to do your time uh, in English conditions and getting more first-class cricket under your belt. And I just think, you know, a great example of that in recent times, Marnus Labuschagne a couple of years ago, you know, had a great season for Glamorgan, um, wasn't a lock in the test team, got an opportunity has nailed it, and now he's one of the best test batsmen in the world, and he's still got plenty of great years in front of him. So I just see, I'd be encouraging all our young players, wouldn't be worried about what they're getting paid, just just ask a county if there's an opportunity for them. I love the fact that you know young Josh Inglis went over this year. Uh, even though he's only playing white ball cricket, he's, he's got exposure, done really well. Marcus Harris went over, played some good cricket for Leicester. Um, there's some good examples there, and I think you know, more of our young batsmen that can do that, um, the better. Well, that stumps, Caddo. I can see the surf just starting to get up there in Barbados, <laughs> so I better let you get out there, mate. Thanks for the chat. Looking forward to catching up over the summer for, for commentary, and most of all, good luck. Thanks very much, Flem. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's it for the Bowlology Report. Thanks, Cato. Pleasure, mate.